All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of the key truth this morning and note its Trinitarian quality. God saves us in Christ to serve sinners in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me read that again. God saves us in Christ to serve sinners in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is Romans 2, 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we step into this, let's remember that Paul here is continuing to take away brick by brick any excuse that either Gentiles or Jews could have for saying we are the favored people of God. And here the brick he takes away is all of the blessings that they had if it were to have no impact upon them, right? So essentially, he's not speaking sarcastically. Please don't hear Paul's words as any sort of indictment in the sense of uh, kind of setting them up, you know, the whole like sarcastic way in which we can go, oh, you who have so much at your disposal, well, that is fantastic, but let us look at its fruits. That's not what he's doing. He's actually commending them. He's reminding them of all the good that they have, but then he's pointing out to them where they have forgotten or forsaken or suppressed the very truth of God as to why they've been given those things. Is that something we need to hear? Do remember, uh, among the Reformed, how do we look at other people's theology? By and large, to say that you're Reformed, like walk into any room full of Christians and announce, uh, I'm Reformed, and watch the looks on their faces. Do they look encouraged? Do they get hospitable? Do they get excited? Oh, finally, some reform person's here. I think this is going to go well from here. Let me make something really clear. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed to be reformed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed to be Presbyterian. On many days, I'm not ashamed of the church. On many days, I'm not ashamed of myself. So it's not, I don't want us to hear in any sort of key from me in the same way that, that Paul is showing them the good that they have. I don't want you to hear me say, I'm embarrassed to be reformed. And in fact, I've said this many times, I am thoroughly reformed as long as it is biblical. Where it is clear biblically, I am as thoroughly reformed as anybody can be. I am as thoroughly Presbyterian where it is biblical as anybody can possibly be. Where it is not, I won't go there. I won't accept it, and I don't care who said it. 
So it's very important that we recognize that we have been given some gifts, right? If you're Reformed, you've got covenant theology. You can make sense from Genesis to Revelation. You don't have to see from from Genesis to Malachi as as the uh, prelude only or the introduction that we, we escaped from or the God that we've been delivered from. We get to make sense of the entire story. What a gift. We understand theology in some ways that ought really humble us. Doctrines of grace, anyone? What would it look like if I say, hey, I, I'm all about the doctrines of grace, and now you get out of my face and get away from me because you're a sinner and don't understand what I understand? See, part of the problem is, is we, and Paul's pointing it out for them, we think what the world has is a knowledge problem. Right? How do most Presbyterians solve most problems? Well, I'll confess, I own 5,000 of what I'm about to say. We give them a book. Is it usually a book less than 100 pages? Is it usually a book that is less than four volumes most of the time? I mean, hey, we, we, we think if, you just get, if we could just get enough knowledge in there, right, the right set of knowledge will fix the problem. Is that the categorical problem that sin brings about? If I'm active in suppressing the truth, what book written by a man who also does the same thing is going to actually flip that switch for me? I didn't just say books can't affect us. I own 5,000 of them. I didn't just do the Biden whisper, did I? Did I? Did I just do the Biden whisper? I own 5,000 of them. I will give you one. But if, I, if I'm not doing it in the context of relationship and there's not, the spirit's not at work and heart change, that book is a dead letter. Right? Or you, you, we like to send people long-form articles or podcasts that extend for years or videos that are longer than two hours. Why? What is going on with us? Like, <laughs> we need to read the elements of style. Strunk and white need to decide more for us than it does. That needs to become you know, part of our biblical understanding of things. But, but that's what we do sometimes, right? That's the caricature. Are we known? If, if someone says, I'm reformed, do you immediately think, ah, oh, finally, somebody who's humble and gracious. Now listen, that's not okay. And we can be part of that not being true. We can be part of looking more like Jesus than those who are angry and think that this is a knowledge problem and try to fix everything, not through relationship, but through uh, lording something over someone as if we were the arbiters of these things. So the initial question that I have for us is, why do you think you have been saved in particular? I'm t this is one of the few times I'm really talking to you as an individual. And don't get all false modest on me and go, well, oh, shucks, I can't, I can't say. No, you can, actually. You have been saved in particular, given the gifts you've been given, the experiences you've been given, and all of the talents you've been given, and the spheres of influence that you've been given specifically to glorify the Lord our God to those who most desperately need to see it. You have been called to represent Jesus to sinners. In your context, now there's something we need to disentangle a bit. We have a hugely westernized view of this. And what most of you hear when I say you've been called or saved for a purpose, you immediately think that you've got to sell all your possessions and move to some uh, very difficult circumstance like Iran. 
But that's the, that's the only, like, if, that's the only like, celebrated thing we could do or move to the inner city or do something magnificent. Is that, look around the room. If that's what we're called to, then we are failing miserably as a church here in the suburbs. I don't believe that's what it is. that is. We're, we're actually called to leverage what we have because God is sovereign and has placed you there. He's given you the children that you have been given to help steward and raise up in the admonition of the Lord, right? And you do that best not by treating them as if they have a knowledge problem, but instead relating to them and helping them to see what does it look like to actually taste and see that the Lord is good. Life is not solved with the simplistic. You have been given your job. You have been given where you live. You have been given all of the different things that you have. Leverage them first. I don't want you to add anything. If you're not living out your salvation for the sake of sinners and the glory of God where you currently are, a change of location probably is not going to fix that. It's a hard issue. And you may say, well, if the Lord would give me some genuine people to work with, that'll listen to me. Well, how'd that go for him? How's that going for him? So we are called in his name. And maybe you think that you've been called to be a prophetic voice against the church. Huh. Who nominated you in this way will be a first question. And just so you don't get upset, I know this all too well. When I became a Christian, I came out of radical anti-theism where I really thought I knew a lot. I really thought I was smarter than most people in any given room because I could see through it. And I was mean. And I'd tell you. I could tell by the look on your face, you don't like it. And that made it better. And so when I became a Christian, guess what didn't change a whole heck of a lot very quickly? That problem. So I read through scripture, which was, was fine. But what I did is without any context, I knew no church history. I knew nothing about denominations. I went to the poor Baptist church that my wife was going to. And I took that Bible and I said, hey, I don't see y'all in here anywhere. What is this? A Kiwanis club? You know what they did? They said, we got a great spot for you. Middle school youth ministry. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't entirely exile. I learned an awful lot. And in addition to that, some foolish person let me teach the young couple Sunday school class, which I turned into one of the worst experiences anybody could have at 9.30 on a Sunday. I was horrible. I meant well. I put those people through a study of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, on a weekly basis, dang near. I would fill the whiteboard with Scripture, wouldn't I? And I was so excited about it. Nobody had the heart to tell me, this is terrible. Finally, somebody did. And the Lord removed me and said, all right, that's enough out of you. And I remember, and you can do this what you will, okay? I didn't hear an audible voice, but it was very clear to me that I needed to shut my mouth. And many of you are like, hey, God, can we? <laughs> In due time. That I, my, I was to learn how to love the people around me. That's what he exposed. I didn't love them. Even though I wanted desperately for them to understand that Christ was in the Old Testament. See, I was reformed before I even knew what that word meant. So I wanted them desperately to understand it, but I didn't, I didn't love them. And I charged them when they didn't get it. And I lopped their noses off and I said, smell that rose. The hysterical part, and this is what tells me God has a sense of humor. So the very first Sunday, I am to keep my mouth closed in Sunday school class. A young man got up to teach. 
<laughs> this is a young couple Sunday school class. I'm not kidding. I'm not going to name him. I hope he's repented and got it together. He said, it is not God's will that any of you be married. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, you got to be kidding me. The one, I'm supposed to be silent. And he was, he was quoting from Paul, right? Where Paul says, this is not a law of the Lord, but it is, is something I would say to you from 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I, I wish none of you were married so we could all do ministry without being encumbered by marriage, which would kind of put a halt to the Abrahamic covenant through having children. But hey, Paul admitted it wasn't God's idea, it was his. Well, this young man just said something that he didn't qualify. And I had to sit there and take it. It was one of the best things ever happened to me. It was beautiful. My wife could tell you I was a volcano. And the Lord made sure. No, but I, I am still learning how to love people, after all. It is not something you arrive at. It is not something that you don't continue to cultivate. You must. And so it's important that we recognize that the Lord calls any particular voice for one purpose, the unity of the church and the glory of his gospel for the life of the world. And where you are failing to do that, you are not doing what he has called you to do. You are not living out the salvation that he has entrusted to you. Now let's see how Paul says that to the Jews and then through them says it to us. Notice what he says to them. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew, which by the way is not a bad thing, He's not lamenting that because who's Paul? Paul himself is Jewish. To be a Jew was to be the chosen people of God, but chosen for a purpose, not chosen to lord over, not chosen to be favored, but chosen as redeemed instruments fashioned by the Lord their God to serve the nations. And we'll see that here in just a moment. He goes on. And you rely on the law, which we remember is a, a relational document that evidences God's character in the world. And he says, and you know his will. What is God's will? So funny to me, we, we perseverate over this as if it has to do with who we're going to marry, where we're going to work, and, and where we're going to live, or what school we go to. God cares about all those things, but his will actually helps you answer all of those questions. What is God's will? Somebody, anybody. Enjoy him, know him, and be instruments of redemption to look like him to be his image bearers. So his will is for us to serve as ambassadors of reconciliation, to actually help the family get bigger, to display his character and call people to him. Judgment occurs when he decides at the end of time, not all along as we go about our daily business. And so if that's his will, how can I answer the question of who should I marry? Well, you should marry the person that's going to help you actually live that out best. Not, not for other <laughs> nefarious reasons or various reasons. You should choose a job that's going to best help you to do that. Not necessarily purely based on how you can make more money. You should choose where you live based on the opportunities that you have to love your neighbors. Right? How can you use that place to be hospitable to your church family and others? Right? There should be good redemptive reasons for why we choose what we choose instead of acting as if God's will is how to make us the most glorious beings anybody has ever encountered and the happiest people of all. That's not God's will. God's will is that he be glorified and sometimes that means you suffer. Sometimes that means you get a demotion, not a promotion. Sometimes that means you make less money. Sometimes that means you downsize. 
And so they know his will and they approve what is excellent, what it glorifies him. So, so far, so good. He says, and you do all this because you are actually instructed by the law, God's word written both in your heart and on stone tablets. And he says, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of truth and knowledge. And just so we know that this is not something that he is being sarcastic about. This was their actual calling. If you would turn to Isaiah 42, I want you to hear this from from God's own word, what it was that he had called them to do so that you would know this isn't something that's just being sprung on them. It's something they should have known. It is who they were. This is Isaiah 42, picking up in verse five. Thus, God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So he's just establishing who's talking. The creator of the universe is the one speaking, not some local deity of some creek or a tree or a grove of trees. This is the one who made it all and is responsible for the very breath in your lungs. So think of how that establishes the authority of what now is said. Notice what he says. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. So what's the direction? Did they decide? You know the history of Israel. When they were in Egypt, did they get together and go, hey, I think we ought to, we ought to try to bust out of this joint. And I think we ought to bust out of this joint so then we can turn and actually invite them into a better family than what Pharaoh can provide because he's a false god. And I think we ought to bust out of this joint so that we can go and serve other nations. Is that what they did? No, they cried out to the Lord. They just wanted relief from their pain. They were narrowly focused on the things of the earth, but God had bigger plans for them. And so he called them in righteousness and he said, I will take you by the hand and keep you, which means that he will remain present with his people along the way. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. What did he just say? What did he just say is their purpose? What does it mean that they would be a covenant for the nations, a light to the people? To draw them in, to make them family, to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Notice he doesn't call them his fist. He doesn't call them the hammer of judgment. Notice he doesn't call them the ax that is laid to the root of the worldly tree. He describes them as servants for the life of the world. And this is their purpose, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Do you know how hard that is to get people to recognize their own circumstances, the darkness in which they sit, the dungeon in which they are enslaved, oftentimes built brick by brick by their own hands? Do you know what it takes to get people to come out? Great patience, forbearance, and kindness. Who's that look like? That's God. If that's what he did for us, then why would we think we are suddenly instruments of a different kind? Why did Israel think they had become instruments of a different kind? So what Paul is doing is reminding them, you have been called for a purpose. You have been saved for a purpose. And maybe you're going, okay, well, that was the Jews. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. 
Let's look at Matthew 20, 25 through 28. It's very important that this is Christ speaking to the disciples and ultimately speaking to the church. He says, but Jesus called the disciples to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's telling them, hey, the people to whom I am sending you have been oppressed and marginalized and bedraggled and told what to think and forced to bow. That's very important. That's the context of the people to which he is calling them. Notice what he says. It shall not be so among you. What did he just say? He said, this is not the way you're being called. This is not the way you will reach them in their darkness. Notice the way that he says they will be reached. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You want true greatness? Serve as Christ served. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So must we be servants of sinners. Now, I know a bunch of you are kind of thinking, well, huh, that ain't terribly nuanced, Mr. Barham. And it sounds like you're, you're just saying we all ought to go hug people that do bad things. No, not at all. If you have listened to this sermon series at all, who is it that is supposed to take sin the most seriously of anybody in any given room? We are. Why? Because we know what it is going to cost if those folks do not come out of that darkness and do not get the eyes to see. So there is an unction and a passion that we must have but in the right direction. If you have been paying attention to this sermon series, you have heard that we should actually point out the things that are killing people. The majority of the time, we actually point out behaviors. Behaviors don't kill people. Suppressing the truth of God ultimately leads to the second death, judgment. It is arrogance, actually, and Josh pointed this out rightly, Rightly, it is pride that ultimately is the greatest sin of all that separates us from God that leads us to the various behaviors. So if all you do is point out the behavior of your sinful friends and family in your spheres of influence, you make them twice the sons and daughters of hell. Did you hear me? If that's all you do, if you don't, help them to see their need for Jesus and the Spirit transform their heart, if you don't invite them into a family that will love them and walk with them through the process of dealing with their pride and arrogance and its behavioral manifestations, which may take, by the way, quite some time. I served at the rescue mission for 10 years. And it's interesting. <clears throat> Do you know what the highest rate there is for recovery from addiction. Like the, I'm talking across the nation what the highest rate ever reported has been. That's not a lie. Maybe 20% on the very top end. 20%. When I was at the rescue mission, losing was a daily reality. 
You had to forbear and be patient. Now, you guys are a whole lot cleaner and nicer than those folks, but you know what is interesting about the parallels? Your sin doesn't seem to resolve any faster than theirs did. You don't seem to come any sooner than they do. You need the same Holy Spirit to grant you the eyes to see and the heart to understand your sinfulness that they did. And here I thought I was getting a promotion. No, that wasn't what I thought. But it's important that we recognize that our calling is to be serious about sin because of the love that we have for those who are going to suffer the most because of it. Their sinful behavior is not what needs to be resolved. Your suffering is not what needs to be resolved. Theirs does. And we as servants are called to be the balm of Gilead, to be as Christ was. Which means we deal with it, but in ways that are far more hospitable than what we've been guilty of to fore. And you may be thinking, well, what about, what about the, the different groups? Right? Are you, are you talking about the, the conservatives? Are you talking about the progressives? I'm talking about all of y'all. Both sides have an inhospitality that I find staggering. There is a sanctimoniousness that prevails on both sides. There is a condescension that has yet to persuade anyone that I can find. You may say, well, are, you, are we talking politics? Are we talking theology? Are we talk all of it. All of it. And if you're concerned with, well, how do, how do we fix this? Well, let's talk about it. And do remember the order. The plank comes before the speck, and where is the plank firmly logged? In our eyes. Now, notice it didn't say forsake or forego the speck in your brother or sister's eye. Now, what's interesting is when you deal with the plank in your own eye first, it reduces the size of the thing that's in the eye of the person that you're trying to help, interestingly, and makes it more possible to help them without blinding them. You are still responsible to help one another in this regard, which is why Paul here says, are you the ones who are the arbiters of reformed theology, doctrines of grace, and you yourself are unaffected by this grace, this humility? We would do well to put ourselves in the dock first, that we would not be afraid to ask the Holy Spirit to help show us how to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Where have we been arrogant, O Lord? How are we being inhospitable? Where are my words pushing people away instead of beckoning, beckoning them to? How do I dwell in this paradox? How do I make sure that I call this sin that is destructive and destroying people, but at the same time, make sure that they know I say it because I love them, not because I hate them, and not because I'm trying to resolve the tension for my own selfish gain. Would that we would pray those kind of prayers and ask the Lord to help us. Because you do know the world's doing it, right? It's interesting. The world does say, the world says, oh, I know exactly who you are, church. You're the folks who hate one another. You even hate each other. Anybody follow the Southern Baptist Convention just a week or two ago? Anybody following the lead up to General Assembly, which I'll be at this coming week? 
the rhetoric, the language, the fear-mongering, the just nonsense. Not that these things don't matter, please don't hear me, but a nonsensical way in which we're going about it. The Lord has given us the means by which we could come to some form of unity. And it's not blog posts. It is not condescending language. It is not the impugning of motives. Please stop calling each other names. Using pejorative terms that are meaningless except for where it wounds. And so it's very important that we be taught, shaped, formed into the image of Christ by the gifts that he has given to us, just as the Jews were called to be. To be ambassadors of reconciliation. Wherever there is an issue of unity, that should be taken very, very seriously. And Christ does not mince words. Paul does not mince words. God does not mince words. And yet, how often do we see problems in unity and we just walk away? Or we ratchet up the heat. We create a greater divide. We're unwilling to step into the tension. We're unwilling to actually put each other in the dock for the good and exaltation and edification of the other. I've told you all this before. Susan's group is going to be doing a book called The Listening Life. I can't wait for her to come to me and ask me my opinion on the things that she's bad at listening on. Because when I gave it to her, she, of the 10 categories, rated me fairly high on all 10 and added one. Which I thought was a bit boisterous. But it was helpful. Who knows me better than her? Who has seen my ability to listen in more context than Susan Barham? Who would I trust to actually tell me the truth and love me better than her? Yet how often do we forsake ourselves the opportunity to hear from the people that really love us? I asked Josh this question. He got scared. He thought I was going to fire him. And, and he told me the truth. He said, hey, there's some ways in which you don't, you don't listen very well. And in us having that conversation, hopefully there won't be a future podcast called The Rise and Fall of Christ Community Church, like there is about Mars Hill. And so we need to be a people who want to become more Christ-like and would entrust that to each other because of what we're able to see. Some of you have opinions about others of you in the church because you've never had a meal with that person. You think that, that they're horrifically judgmental and voted for certain people and think certain ways and have certain theologies because you've never sat down with them and had any sort of conversation whatsoever and you charge them with it in a way that is driving you out of the church instead of drawing you further up and further in. And it's happening on all sides, by the way. This is not to one side or the other. There are those of you who have come to certain understandings of different kind of social positions and needs within our culture, which, by the way, had been going on long before you figured it out. You do understand that, right? Like, you didn't, you didn't invent racial reconciliation. Like, I've been at this game for a long time. And I'm glad you're here, but you need to pace yourself. And what would it look like for you actually to do something instead of talk about it in abstract forms, and invite other people into it who could taste and see that it's good. And see what it looks like to actually be faithful in a space that seems to only have two options, neither of which are good or biblical. 
I know what I'm talking about because when I first started at the rescue mission, guess what I did toward everybody else who didn't think homelessness was a big issue and didn't care about broken, marginalized people. Well, I let them know I had a chip on my shoulder. Susan could tell you I was terrible. I'd say all kind of crazy stuff. I didn't win very many friends, and I didn't influence really anybody positively. And something flipped. The Lord was gracious yet again, as he is to sinners like us. He showed me, why don't you be hospitable? Let's just try something different. Instead of being a jerk, why don't you invite people to come and see? And that's what we did. And I figured out people will endure all manner of things if Susan will cook. And so what we would do, usually on Friday or Saturday night, if we were at the rescue mission, we'd have a meal back at my house. It was one of the most beautiful, robust times of my entire Christian life. I've never experienced anything like it since. It was formative and helped me to see that this is a complex issue and there's people who don't understand it, but until they can see it in person in the flesh and kind of wrestle with it, we would often invite people from the rescue mission so they could come and, and talk and share their humanity. And people would see that it's not enough to look at somebody and say, go get a job. Stop taking drugs. Oh, okay, well, that's it. <laughs> if it were only that simple. If sin were that easy to cure by behavior, which the Bible tells us is not, we were suppressing the truth by saying those things to those people. And so, by inviting people in, it began to change the tone in the conversation. We didn't read a book. We tasted and saw, and it was beautiful. So if you got something that you're real passionate about, why don't you invite some other people to come and see or invite them into a conversation or just invite them out for a meal? Maybe you're wondering, what's that person like? What's that person? I think they think this way. Are they, are they human at all? Have you reduced their humanity? See, this is doing the devil's work, is it not? Anytime we reduce humanity, who, who longs to do that? That's Satan's work. So how might we become a more hospitable church? Well, I would say it has to start within first. If we aren't hospitable to each other, let me say it again, if we are not hospitable to each other and active in so doing, what are we inviting people into? Are we just trying to invite enough people like us to get a critical mass where this can be an actual enjoyable place for us? Instead of trusting the sovereignty of the Lord who has placed you here for a season. How might we use what we have in front of us? Because here's the cost if we don't. Listen to what he says. For uh, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of their sin. Is that what it says? Somebody has a Bible out there somewhere. Read those last three words out loud for me, somebody. I know we're Presbyterian. I'm, I'm participatory. I, I love it. Because of you. That should not be spoken of us. He's actually quoting Isaiah 52 here. Now remember, Isaiah 42, they'd been told who they were. By the time he gets to 52, he's having to tune them up because they had forgotten already. And how often do we forget and, re and are fighting the wrong thing? Treating people the wrong way. Listen to what Charles Hodge says. 
Christians should ever remember that they are epistles of Jesus Christ, known and read of all men. Do you understand that in an increasingly biblically illiterate society, which we are, and by the way, I'm not hearkening back to the Victorian era when the Bible would be quoted in novels, uh, which oftentimes didn't have anything to do with Jesus, by the way. They were just stories. So I'm not saying we're more... Uh, understanding of Christ. I'm just saying, as far as having tent pegs of the Bible to work from, they're not there anymore. So you are the most Bible anyone is going to get as far as witness is concerned, as far as impact is concerned. Now, I'm not saying that that has, therefore, what you do is get you a little calendar, it's got scripture on it, and you tear it off every day and you lay it on your coworker's desk. If the Lord calls you to do that, do that. And I pray that it would bear fruit. I don't think that's the main way. They're going to look at that piece of paper and they're going to look at you and they're going to say, how do you explain the gap? Right? So we need to take stock of and reflect on how are we living out what we've been given? This great treasure trove of salvation and all of its means of grace and resources and the spirit that indwells us. He goes on, that God is honored by their holy living and that his name is blasphemed when they act wickedly. How we live matters significantly. How we love each other matters significantly. How we use our words, how we speak of marginalized people, how we speak of hypocrites matters. Remember a few weeks ago, we said that one of the things we ought to be doing as a church is praying for and seeking to be hospitable to hypocrites, ourselves included. Because of the cost, we should take sin the most seriously of anybody in any given room and be the most creative in hoping and and applying the gospel to it. So how is your salvation benefiting those in your spheres of influence? Please don't become false modest on me here. Well, that's not for me to say, Cameron. I, I I can't laud myself. No, I'm not asking you to laud yourself. I'm asking you to take stock of how is your being saved a Christian in your spheres of influence of any benefit to the people around you? If you don't know, ask. Ask somebody. You can tee it up like this. You can say to your coworker, hey, my pastor, he's nuts. He wants me to ask this question, so I'm just, if you would indulge me so he'll get off my back. I don't care if you do it that way. But listen to what they say. You should be able to already know based on what they think of you and whether or not they invite you to anything and whether or not you're welcome into any of their spaces and whether or not they share any of their suffering with you. That usually is a good sign. If someone's willing to share their suffering with you, they're willing to tolerate you praying and those kinds of things, that is a good sign. If not, it's not a good sign. And then, does how you live your life support or detract from your salvation, benefiting those in your spheres of influence? Again, you have to take stock of your own life because you know your inner life, your heart in these matters, in addition to the outward manifestation. If you're unwilling to place yourself in the dock, who's going to? Well, the world is. They're doing it now. And woe be unto us if the Lord is blasphemed because of us. We, as he's going to tell the Gentiles, are an olive branch that ought to be broken off and thrown into the fire. I don't want to be that kind of church. I would rather us be the kind of church that recognizes we've been saved to serve sinners. 
Now, if you've got questions about that, if you don't think I've properly nuanced how you should engage issues of race and sexuality and all those things, well, th this wasn't the sermon for that nuancing. If you're not even convinced that you ought to serve sinners with your salvation, that conversation's worthless because we're already starting off in the wrong direction. But from that foundation, if you want to have a conversation about what does that look like, that's what we're here for. That's what we want to do is equip you, the saints, for the work of the ministry in all of its forms, right? Let's have that conversation. We want to serve you. And so, church, would you join me in seeking to grow in humility because of the great gift we've been given? We've been entrusted with great doctrine and theology and history and covenant theology and Bible understanding. May we be so humbled by all that and give it away so the next generation can do more than we've done and better than we've done. And the family would be bigger as a result. Would you join me in, in, in longing to be more hospitable by beginning with each other? If we ourselves aren't hospitable among ourselves, inviting people into that space, they ain't staying very long. Right? He's laughing at that. He's laughing at us. So let's grow. Let's grow to be more like Jesus, who is the plumb line. Let's do what he's called us to do, love sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you would entrust to us what you've entrusted to us. How great your love for us that you would give us so much. May we be absolutely humbled by that. May we seek to build other people up because of it. May we seek to actually see others exalted and go further than we've gone. Uh, may it not be for our glory, our being favored by you, but instead that we would be humbled and serve as Christ came to do. Help us, Lord, in all the different paradoxical circumstances and situations, love sinners as you came to love sinners. In Christ's name, amen.